Valerie's my mother's name. Rush is for white suburban boys. Anybody remember cassettes? My tumor was the Beyonce of uterine fibroids. This is the soundtrack series. The soundtrack series. Hey there, this is the Soundtrack Series. Stories about songs, the soundtrack to our lives, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. I'm Dana Rossi. Coming up later on the show, music journalist Amy Linden tells us about being pregnant and wanting to be, being married and not wanting to be, and how Paul Westerberg factored into all of this. He goes, I got an idea. Let's flip a coin. Tails we stay with our spouses, heads we break up. Flip the coin. It's heads. I go home. Within a week, I tell my husband, I don't want to be married anymore. But first... The Bitch Better Have My Money video. I, I have to work some things out. I, when, when it was described to me initially... I it thought to me, I thought it sounded like maybe Madonna's "What It Feels Like for a Girl" video, you know, where she's driving around with the old lady, and then yeah. So I thought it was a combination of that and "Smack My Bitch Up" because oh, remember how banana shit everyone went at that video? It's a girl. Oh, I miss 1998. Anyway, so I watched it. I watched "Bitch Better Have My Money," and I was like, blood and boobies. And then other than that, I I'm not sure I follow, and it's not because I'm old. Okay, this is I, I actually have a history with this kind of thing. I talk a lot about nostalgia, of course. That's kind of the thrust of this show. But for me, I, I would ne- you would never hear me say anything like music is not as good as it used to be 20 years ago or whatever. Because I don't I don't think when people say that, I don't think they mean that. I think they just sort of miss a time when they were in a certain place and music was hitting them a certain way. That's what I, I really think it is. And and for me, what I know it is, is I miss certain rituals that I would have related to music that I, I just, I don't use or really because I don't need anymore. You know, something like taping songs off the radio, or if I didn't know what a song was and I wanted to find out what it was, like right now I can just Google lyrics, but you know, at the time it was more like I'd have to sing it at people or wait for it on some top 10 countdown, whatever. But another th- another ritual I really miss is staying up all night to watch overnight MTV to wait for one video to be played. And it's like you have this favorite video and, and that video is is walk like an Egyptian. And so you sat glued to your TV and you waited for it. And so and then you sat through 19 videos that were not Walk Like an Egyptian until finally Walk Like an Egyptian played. And then it was over. And you were like, that was so great. I want to see it again. So you got to sit through 19 more videos waiting for Walk Like an Egyptian to come on again. And that's that's the, that's the thing that I miss. I miss waiting up to see your song and the thrill of victory when the video played and you got to see it after. Who knew? Who knew that you'd actually get to see a video you waited to see you sitting in front of your television, not moving for three hours. Miracles do happen. But there was something really exciting about that. And I remember being about, I guess I was 13 or 14 because it was 1992. And I am so into November Rain. Like it was that song. It was like, finally, this, this is our Hey Jude. And I couldn't get enough of the song. And so then naturally, of course, I'd always want to see the video. And so while I would stay up overnight watching MTV and and wait, I would be waiting for November rain to come on. But the thing is, and this is what ties back to the beginning, is I was trying to make sense of it. November rain was the first video that I 
remember being really confusing to me that I felt like I needed to watch it over and over again to finally get it, to to read into all the clues and figure out what was happening in the story and how the girl died and what happened. I had never encountered a video that was that was such a brain fuck before. It was ridiculous. Other videos up to this point in my life were so easy. But November Rain was one of those things where I got the feeling I was supposed to get it and then I still didn't get it. And then the more I tried to get it, the less I got it. And that was so frustrating to me. I mean, I got it for the most part. Axel had a girlfriend and then they got married and then she died and he was upset. But I didn't get how she died or why she died or who killed her. And and that was the thing I knew I was supposed to understand. There's the, the scene that's because the whole thing is flashbacks. Yeah. But then there's the part where Axel walks by a gun store. And I, that that to me was that was a huge clue because it was late and they were closed. So what does that mean? That he would have been the one who who wanted to kill her, but then someone else beat him to it? Or or was it only something he considered and then kind of moved on? You know, it was just kind of a red herring thing. And also that that gun store, remember, it just kind of said guns up at the top real big, like we were in Frontierland at Disney World. Totally crazy. And then there's the wedding and people are dancing and then Anthony Kiedis jumps over the cake and people are hiding and whatever else happens. And then all of a sudden we're just at the funeral and and we see her in the casket. And this was like the big deal at the time was the whole mirror effect thing that they use. Because I always focused on this part very closely because I hadn't thought, hey, Dana, tape the video and then you can pause it. So I would just, you know, watch it a lot and I'd want to stay up all night. Maybe I wasn't very bright. But anyway, there's the thing. When a person dies violently, apparently, and their face is really damaged beyond repair, but they still want to have an open casket, I guess what the undertaker can do sometimes is use a mirror that's placed perpendicular to the remaining half of your face, like right down the middle, which creates the illusion that the corpse still has a whole face. But then I was actually finally able to see that they used a mirror, but it went down the entire length of her body, which meant she died in a way that left her with just half a body. But then the video, you know, they're at, he's at the funeral and it's raining and then they go back to the wedding though and she throws the bouquet in the air and it changes from white to red and then the flowers land on the casket and he just kind of opens his eyes and he sees the flowers down there on the casket as it's raining and he realizes something and I, that's the thing. I always got the sense that I was supposed to get it And I don't know if I ever did. And then there was the whole thing about how the video for Estranged is gonna answer all the questions from November Rain. And it was dolphins or something. So I I don't know. And yeah, I could find it on Wikipedia now, but I just remember being mystified by that video. And so when I first watched Bitch Better Have My Money, it was that old feeling again of, holy crap, I need to watch this again because... I have no idea what's really going on in this. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to watch it now again and see the kinds of things that I find. I'm going to watch it with the sound off. It's just distracting. I get it. Someone doesn't have your money and they should. You know what? Maybe a great mashup would be Bitch Better Have My Money and Baby I Got Your Money. Old Dirty Bastard. Top two, Internet. Okay. So here we go. We'll push play together. This is kind of like when we when we sync up. Dark Side of the Moon with the Wizard of Oz on the Lion's Roar. All right. So this is the shot of the thing that looks like maybe a bench or a chest and you see somebody's leg sticking out and you think that's probably a dead body. It's so weird. We're looking at it through two trees and it reminds me of the big W in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. Anyway, moving on. So now there's this obviously wealthy white lady and she's putting a necklace on in her apartment. But then as we see the nighttime and there's a car driving and it's going to be someone up to no good. I will say, though, that someone up to as 
much not good as Rihanna would be right now would have killed the lights of the car a while before she pulled up to the house. She also wouldn't be making this much noise. But, oh, okay, so here's the first topless shot. It's a see-through bra because they're just desensitizing us right away. This is basically saying there's no reason for us to see this right now other than we're going to show you boobs for the entire video, so consider yourself desensitized. All right, I am. So Rihanna's dragging a chest up the stairs. I don't know yet if this woman is going to be her very button-down accomplice or if this is going to be the woman that she kidnaps. She is holding a dog, however. So she gets into the elevator with someone with a chest in there and thinks absolutely nothing of it. Doesn't go, you know what, I'll take the next elevator. It's fine. And then the elevator opens again, and that woman is no longer in the elevator because she's now in the chest. And the little dog runs and follows, and I think that's the last we see of the dog. Don't know. So now now she's got two accomplices that we haven't seen up until this point, and they load the body into the back of a trunk, and they're driving with the top down, and the trunk open, and the naked body in the back seat, and then they bring her to this warehouse where she's got like a grill on or some kind of restriction on her mouth, and they're swinging her back and forth by her feet. They pull into a gas station and I think a costume change has happened for Rihanna. I don't know. I don't know when she'd have time. Oh, and she's she's screaming at someone on a payphone, which is making me wonder what year this takes place in. Then they burn the car. I will say her accomplices look pretty badass. And then all of a sudden they're on a boat. Here we go again with the dolphin thing. The woman they kidnapped is throwing up in a bucket and then they have her in a pool. And I think she's wearing swimmies even though it's a little kiddie pool that she's in. So I'm not really sure what that's about. And I'm not really sure what it's about that they have to be on a boat. I'm pretty sure this was just, hey, I know someone with a boat. We should put it in the video. Okay. The prisoner, by the way, kidnappy, whatever, still topless. And then the sheriff pulls up and she, the woman kidnapped tries to yell for the sheriff and the woman next to her hits her on the head with a bottle. I would have thought the sheriff would have seen that. So now I think the body is in the trunk and they bring her into this, like sleazy motel room and they put lipstick on her and they put, I love that though. They put the eyelashes over the bandana. That's fucked up. I, I don't know why I love that so much, but, but I do. And then everything is upside down and there's wood paneling and we're smoking a crack pipe maybe. And then we're rubbing our butts on the woman that we kidnapped, but it looks like she likes it and she's having a good time. And is Rihanna wearing someone's panties on her head? I think she is. Or that just might be a really cute hat. And now we're back with this sheriff who didn't see someone hit someone else on the head with a bottle. Rihanna's acting all innocent. We see the woman underwater, but it's really just a shot to see Rihanna's big bountiful ass. Let's let's be honest. And then we're driving at night. We never kill the headlights. Never. No matter what we're doing, we're as conspicuous as possible. We're dragging the trunk. This to me is the creepiest thing. When she's looking at the knives and everything and she's kind of like running them over her hand and whatnot. And those gloves she's wearing, those latex gloves, oh my God, it's so creepy. It's so Dexter. It's so the movie Seven. It's disgusting. And so now we realize that the target, I think, is actually the accountant. It's actually the woman's husband. And so we're flashing back through the rest of the video and that she was on the phone with her accountant the whole time, like, where's my money? I have your wife. Okay, I'm hanging up. So... She cuts the shit out of the accountant. I'm pretty sure. He's tied up in a chair. He's trying to get out. And she cuts the shit out of him. And then here we are at the end of the video. And you see the legs sticking out of the trunk. And you think, oh, it's the accountant. And boom, reveal. It's very smack my bitch up. It's Rihanna lying on a pile of money 
in the trunk, smoking a cigarette, strategically placed dollar bills on her hoo-ha, and video. So I think it's this. Her accountant fucked her over, so she decides to kidnap his wife. They make her be naked and drive her around and torture her. And then by the poolside, do that weird thing with the bottle on the head. And then the cop looks again. And then it's this weird weekend at Bernie's thing. And then we don't really know what I think they kill her. That's the thing is we don't really see them do anything with her. That's that's one of my biggest questions. First of all, what happens to the dog? Second of all, what happens to her? Is it supposed to be that she drowned in the pool? But who's looking because it's Rihanna's ass shot. So I'm sure there's things I'm just missing with this. And for everything that they were willing to show you in that video, they don't show you actually killing him. They show you little, like the, you know, the crime scene set up with like the different numbers or letters that kind of show where the blood splatter happened or sometimes, you know, when it's gunshots, like, well, it was a bullet, one bullet here, one bullet here, like that set up. They show you that. They show you blood splatter on things, but they don't actually show her doing anything to him, which is odd. For the rest of the video, they kind of show you a lot, I would think we were going to get a payoff. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being picky. Because at least this time, I may not know exactly how the guy died. I may not know exactly what happened to the wife. But at least this time, I know who did the killing. And somehow, I don't know, that's more satisfying. That puts a better bow on it than November Rain did with their dolphins. You know what weird little moment I loved, by the way, going back to the November Rain video? I loved when Stephanie Seymour, so now she's at the wedding, it, like not at the ceremony, that dress was great, but then at the party, at the reception, and she's in the sleek black dress with the gloves all the way up her arms, and she cuts the cake and then licks the knife. I just loved that moment. I used to try to imitate it in my everyday life. It didn't really work out. All right, our story for this episode is from music journalist Amy Linden. And it's her story about the year 1988, how she was pregnant and really wanted to be, but how she was married and really didn't want to be, and the big part that Paul Westerberg himself played in all of this. So I have been a music critic since, I guess, professional since 1986. Uh, I started when I was in kindergarten. <laughs> and like most white people, white people in the 80s, I was a huge Replacements fan. And I had seen them once at Irving Plaza with my then boyfriend, who was a junkie. We were as fucked up as, as the band was, so I'm assuming they were really great, but the replacements back then were notorious for putting on shows where nothing got done other than just complete shambles, and hence they were great live. So anyway, so the replacements were putting out an album which I think is considered one of their worst albums. I love it, Don't Tell a Soul. And I think it was coming out in, here I'm gonna use record company lingo, it was gonna drop fourth quarter. Um, <laughs> so 
somehow, I don't know how, if I asked to review it or interview them, but I, I interviewed them for New York Newsday, who I used to do a lot of stuff for. So I was going to interview the band. The record was going to come out fourth quarter. It's 1988, and I'm eight months pregnant. I'm also married and miserable in the whole marriage thing. Don't want to be married anymore. Just want to have a kid. Very excited about being a mother. All that kind of yay stuff. Don't want to be married anymore. Don't want to be married anymore. <laughs> like, don't want to be married anymore. <laughs> like, I have female friends of mine that I've probably had more sex with than I did with my ex-husband. <laughs> All right, so anyway, so I'm off to, to uh, interview the replacements. They were on, uh, this sounds so lingually, I'm sorry, but they were on Warner Brothers. So I went up to Rockefeller Center, I think that's where they were at the time, and I'm going to interview the, the replacement. Now, I actually didn't really look pregnant as much as I looked really fat. I'm a tall woman, but, you know, I was big. So I go up there, and the replacements are there. Now, this is when... Bob Stinson, the original guitar player, had passed. So I think it was just the three guys. It was Tommy Stinson, who was very young, who ended up being in Guns N' Roses. The, Chris Marr, the drummer, and of course, Paul Westerberg, who every fucking girl who could draw breath wanted to sleep with. And he obliged pretty much every fucking girl who could draw breath. He was just, I don't know if you guys know what he looks like. He's like one of those boys that is like on paper, not good looking, but just so sexy in that kind of, I can really make your life better if you just let me kind of way. <laughs> All right, so anyway, did I mention I didn't want to be married anymore? <laughs> so anyway, so I go up there to interview them. I'm pregnant. This was back when you could smoke on planes. You could smoke indoors and you could drink heavily on planes. And the replacements were drunks, basically, and freely admitted to being. They were, you know, they would drink, they, they told me a story once how they'd always made them laugh that the writers thought it was such a big coup to go out and drink with the band. Paul said, we're alcoholics, we'll drink with any, anybody. <laughs> Especially if somebody else is paying for the liquor, of course. So anyway, so I go up there, I'm gonna go up there, you know, to interview them. But before that, I'm listening to the record, which is not vinyl, which is actually a cassette tape. And I'm listening to the cassette tape. This is pre-CD, I believe. And this song, Will Inherit the Earth, comes up. Now, I was listening to it again today, and it's really not even that great a song. That's the thing. It's, it's over... Well, I don't think anything could ever be overproduced, but it's, by replacement standards, overproduced. There's a lot of track vocals. There's a, it may or, the band may or may not actually be playing on it. It may be all Westerberg, the rumor has it. But it's very lush and produced and it's not stripped down. But there was, I would listen to it incessantly. And there was something about the hook, we'll inherit the earth, we'll inherit the earth. I took this as sort of like this sign for my yet to be born, yet to be, I don't know, I didn't know what sex it was, child. This child was like, here it is, like there's all this promise and it's going to be so great. And it's a good thing I wasn't listening to Two Live Crew because it wouldn't have been really disastrous. <laughs> anyway, so I have this in my mind, and I knew there's songs I would, but there was just something about this song, Will Inherit Therapy, and I always flashed back to that whenever I would listen to it. I go to interview the replacements. They're drunk. I mean, it is a two-hour flight from Minneapolis. Let's, you know, let's be fair. 
and it's Christmas time in New York, and it's really hectic. Oh, and they're late, of, t of course. But that was prepping me for uh, years later writing about hip hop, where rappers show up like whenever. Anyway, so they're late, and they were not huge fans of being interviewed. They were not great with press, though press, male press loved them. The guys wanted to fuck them more than the girls actually did because they were just so in love with them. So we're sitting there and we're starting to do the interview and I'm a little nervous because it's early on in my career. And they're just talking smack back and forth. And Tommy Stinson was quite young when he joined the band. So he was still pretty young. He was probably in his late teens, early 20s. And he was a dick. Just an absolute, complete shithead. And was just cursing and obnoxious and like cutting off the questions and just being a shit. And at one point, Westerberg turns to him and goes, can't you see she's fucking pregnant? Can you stop cursing? <laughs> And I was like, I'm like, see, these are the things that crushes are made out of. <laughs> they were very kind not to smoke in the, you know, with me around. You know, they did have basic courtesy. So we did the interview. The interview went fine. It was, you know, kind of like, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Pleased to meet me. Ba-boom. Um, and that's a, that's a replacements joke. And then... <laughs> You know, that's it. I have the baby, you know, yay, baby. Cut to about maybe a year and a half later. I'm still married. Like, I don't want to be married. <laughs> like, I so don't want to be married. And I'm writing a lot for Spin Magazine, and I find myself volunteering to do a lot of out-of-town trips. Oh, you need somebody to go to, to cover this band? I don't know. I can, I can do that. I got nothing to do. My mother can take the kid. There's no problem. I can go. I can go. So I'm going to interview The Replacements. And this is when their, I guess what's considered their last album came out. And the band had essentially broken up. I mean, they were basically broken up. Bob Stinson had passed away. Uh, they had a new guitar player. So they had basically broken up. So it was going to basically be the Paul Westerberg show. And then you would talk to the other guys, but you'd go back to talking to Paul. So I'm in Minneapolis and I'm like, what am I going to do with, I mean, you know, we'll do the interview. And the publicist was like, you can always go down and go into the healing waters of Lake Minnetonka. Um, <laughs> so I'm at the hotel. It's summertime. Knock, knock, knock. Paul comes to pick me up at the hotel. Very sweet. He looks pretty cute. I mean, he's kind of a little guy, but he looks cute. He's wearing like this nice, oh, he was sober. That was the big part of the story, too. He was cleaned up. So he looked pretty cool. He's wearing this white shirt. Comes to the door, he's kind of standing there, and he looks at me and he goes, we've met before, right? We've met before. And I said, yeah. And he goes, when did we meet? We meet, and I said, you know, about a year and a half ago or so. And he goes, you, you look kind of different, though. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I was eight months pregnant the last time I saw you. And he goes, so how'd that work out for you? <laughs> I said, well, I had the baby. And he's like, oh. Good, that's, oh, that's great. And we proceeded to go do the interview. And the interview was knocked out in about an hour. And then from there, we kind of went on a two-day platonic date. We went around the city, we, we did all sorts of things, we walked around, we took a bus someplace, but he did not kiss me on the bus, unfortunately. <laughs> we end up going back to my hotel room because that's what you're supposed to do. He's married. I'm married. He's fucking everything that, I mean, everyone. I mean, kind of notorious for that. 
we start kind of making out and, you know, things are kind of kind of high school dry humping kind of shit. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I, I can't do this because A, I'm married. And B, I got to write a story about you. I mean, not for nothing. I got to write a story about you. And I don't think it's cool. And he's like, no, I understand. It's totally cool. He goes, I got an idea. Let's flip a coin. Tails, we stay with our spouses. Heads, we break up. Flip the coin. It's heads. I go home. Within a week, I tell my husband, I don't want to be married anymore. He's like, I don't really want to be married either. <laughs> we eventually split up. And I would occasionally see Westerberg, you know, press stuff every few years. I would see him. Nothing ever happened between us. But we maintained this sort of communication over the years. I haven't seen him or talked to him in years. But there was always this sense he told me whenever he comes to New York, he knew at some point he was going to end up talking to Amy Linden which I thought was really sweet. And I used to be on a TV show on VH1, and he told me once, you know, I watch your show, I see it, I watch it with the, I watch it with the volume off. <laughs> I said, that's so funny, that's how I listened to your first solo record. <laughs> <laughs> so like I said, I keep, when I thought about the songs, there was just something, and it's not even that great a song. It's a good song, but there was just something about that song at that moment, eight months pregnant, my first child on the way, filled with this, I don't know if any of you have kids, but filled with this fear and anticipation and just what kind of world is my kid going to have? Am I going to be able to do this? I, not, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be a single mother within a year, so can I do it? So we'll inherit the earth. That became the song that I associate with Lucian, my son. He's probably never heard it. He'd probably think, if I told him, he'd probably think it's a completely whack, corny story. But there you go. A tip of the hat to you, Paul Westerberg, and The Replacements. <laughs> yes, Amy Linden. And I don't know, maybe it's a hindsight thing, but that sounded like an awesome... 1988. I know there was a lot of uncertainty, but if I look back on my 1988, it was a lot of braces and pastel sweaters with shoulder pads in them and Debbie Gibson. Not all bad, but that was better. And that's it. That's our episode for this go-round. This has been the Soundtrack Series. And you know what? You know the drill. You know you can find us on iTunes. You know you can find us on Stitcher, on Spotify. Hey, did you know that two stories from Soundtrack Series past will be appearing on Dan Savage's podcast. You know now, because they will. You can also find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us at Infinite Guest. Or if you listen hard enough, in the howl of a dog in the distance. This has been the Soundtrack Series, part of the Infinite Guest Network from American Public Media. Thanks for listening. <laughs>